Want to learn the insights of Oculus, Palmer Lucky, and VR? Then this episode is for you, so let's get to it. You are listening to the How to Create VR podcast, weekly conversations with VR and AR professional creators, designers, and producers. Hello and welcome to another episode of the How to Create VR podcast, where I speak with professional creators, designers, developers, and producers who work on VR, AR, and MR projects. I'm Marcelo Lewin, a VR evangelist and the creator of HowToCreateVR.com. My guest is Blake J. Harris, the author of The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality, and Console Wars. Today, Blake and I will be chatting all about Oculus, Facebook, Palmer Lucky, and everything else VR-related, based on the questions that were submitted by you, our audience. But before we get started, I want to remind you to register at HowToCreateVR.com. It's free, and registration gives you access to all of our content, including tutorials, podcast interviews, and more. Just visit howtocreatevr.com and click on the register for free button. All right, Blake, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. I'm obviously not a creator or producer directly of VR, but I've interviewed tons of them and, and I appreciate you uh, including me on the podcast. And you interviewed the number one creator, right? Palmer Lucky. I mean, he's the guy that restarted this whole revolution again. I would say so. The book is largely focused on Palmer and his co-founders in the early days of Oculus and building this revolution. And that's what I really found fascinating. Um, you know, I love virtual reality. I wouldn't have spent four years on the book if I didn't. But just in terms of a technological revolution in general, seeing what it takes from a marketing standpoint, um, a team standpoint, a business standpoint, creative standpoint, and then obviously the engineering standpoint, you know, it was really fun for me and really fascinating for me to see all these elements come together. Definitely. Well, we're going to get into all of that, but I'd like to get a little bit of background on you personally. How did you get into writing? What did you do prior to that? Or were you always a writer? Give us your background. Sure. So by the time I went to college, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I had no idea how to monetize that desire, how to find a career in writing. So I gravitated towards filmmaking, which still doesn't really have a track, but at least there's more of a track than with creative writing. I ended up getting rejected from most of the screenwriting programs I applied to. And so after college, I took a job trading commodities for Brazilian clients. And I did that job for seven years. It was not what I wanted to be doing. But that said, I really enjoyed the people I work with and the clients. So it was as good of a day job as I could ask for. And I also Got out of work uh, usually around three o'clock because the market closed. So it was like six to three were the hours. So that was good for an aspiring and unsuccessful at that point writer. And then eventually started working on console wars and started interviewing people who had worked at Sega and Nintendo and put together a book proposal and uh, was able to get Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg to become involved with that. They wrote the forward to the book. They also are producing a TV show and a documentary based on the book. And then I was able to quit my day job and write full time. And I wrote Console Wars and it came out in 2014. And then I ended up uh, working on this book about Oculus and virtual reality and have really spent most of the past three and a half to four years doing just that. Well, tell us real quick, Console Wars, what's the book about? Give us a summary of it. And why did you write it? It's a behind the scenes look at the corporate battle between Sega and Nintendo from the late 80s and early 90s. And the reason I wrote it is because it felt to me like the behind the scenes story of my childhood because video games factored so heavily into my childhood. Mostly I wrote it because I love reading behind the scenes business stories and I was shocked that there was not 
already such a book about Sega and Nintendo or about many things in the video game industry. And so that's what initially interested me. And I didn't really know where it was headed at first, but I was started conducting a lot of interviews. I was hoping it would lead to a book, but perhaps a documentary or perhaps, uh, you know, like a narrative movie like The Social Network. Fortunately, it ended up leading, knock on wood, to all three. And uh, yeah, it was really life changing for me. Like I said, I got to quit my day job. I got to write full time. I get to write full time now. And it did really well. So I was able to end up writing another book. And it will always be my first, the most special thing to me. And it was just a really fun story, too. You know, it was a great underdog story about how Sega went from 5% of the market up to 55% and then fell back down. And through Tom Kalinske, largely, who was the protagonist of the book and the president of Sega of America from 1990 to 96, you get to see the birth of a video game industry. And so in that way, the new book about the resurrection of VR and sort of getting to where we are today was sort of similar in that Console Wars really does depict, for the most part, for the early portion, the Wild West days of the industry. And I think that that's definitely where we are, or at least where we were from 2012 to 2017 with virtual reality. And, and that's a really fascinating time. It's a scary time to be a developer. It's a scary time to be writing a book about this technology that has not sold the consumers yet. But it's also very exciting, filled with a lot of opportunity and, and really nice people. I guess potentially every industry is filled with nice people, but I do feel like there's a certain kinship amongst those of us who had an interest in VR at a time, and even still now, when it's uh, you know not always commercially successful or commercially viable. Well, and it seems that you are really focusing on writing about the beginning of these technologies. Is that what you're trying to focus on? Or it just happened that you, know, you wrote about the Sega console wars, and now you're writing about VR and sort of at the beginning of the market? It's a good question. I guess I would say that it remains to be seen, depending on what I work on next. For me, there's two aspects to it. One is that everything I write, I like to say that I write with my grandmother in mind, basically trying to figure out how could I get my grandmother to care about a story about Sega and Nintendo or a story about virtual reality, which are both things that, you know, on topic alone, she'd have no interest in. And the answer I often find is through character and talking about the ideas and stuff like that more so than the technology or at least finding ways to weave in the technological aspect. And then the other part is that after Council Wars and throughout most of my writing of the history of the future, I ended up starting to work with uh, Paul Shear and his podcast, How Did This Get Made?, which is a podcast about terrible movies and Paul and his uh, co-hosts, uh, Jason Manzukis and June Diane Raphael, they are improv comedians and they make fun of these terrible movies. But what they had not been doing was explaining how did these movies actually get made. And I volunteered to take on that role for them. And I mention all this to say that that, I guess, is what I see as my niche is writing about how things get made. So that does have a tendency to focus on the earlier stages. That's usually where a lot of interesting things right. happen. But, you know, I still have that interest in anything. You know, if you were to tell a story about the Super Bowl last year for the Patriots, there's a sort of a process driven, character driven story you could tell. It doesn't have to start at the beginning of the franchise, but you'll probably get the history in there as you're telling the story. And so that's what I like to do is to try to figure out how to break down complex interesting things, often with an intersection with entertainment and technology and figure out how to make it accessible to any audience. I got to give you this. I didn't read Console Wars, but I fully read History of the Future twice. I loved it. And it is definitely very character driven. And it reads like a movie almost. So <laughs> with that in mind, do you write this thinking like, okay, I want to make a movie out of this in the future, or hopefully it'll lead to that? Or that's just the way you write? That's a good question. Because like I said, I was like very fortunate with Console Wars to be in a position where we sold the film right to Seth Rogen before I even sold the book to a publisher. So that's unusual. 
and very fortunate. And so I think a lot of people assumed that I wrote the book in a certain way that would maybe lend itself towards Seth telling a movie story, but that was not the design. I really do just write basically what I would like to read and try to figure out what is the most accessible way to get this information out there. If you have a chapter about three DOF or six DOF tracking, that's definitely not something my grandmother is going to want to read. But if you include that information in a chapter about Palmer Lucky and Brendan Areeb and Nate Mitchell and Mike Antonov, the founders of Oculus, meeting at a hotel on July 4th in 2012 and sort of their anxieties and excitement and sneak that information in there in a digestible way. So it really is more about how I like to consume stories that led to my telling them that way. But I always take that as a really big compliment that the stuff I write reads like a movie. Just means that it's compelling and easy to visualize. Definitely. We've got a lot of questions for you from the audience. Real quick, give us a summary of the history of the future, and then we'll jump into the questions. Sure. So the book is called The History of the Future with the subtitle, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. And sort of as the subtitle implies, it is a story about the founding of Oculus and the early days of Oculus and basically how it led to them selling the company to Facebook for almost $3 billion. Also through that, trying to see the future of virtual reality and and where Facebook seems to want to take things. Um, And like we've discussed, it's a very character-driven story. And to write this book, I had incredible access. I had essentially unlimited access uh, provided by Facebook and Oculus to their employees. And then I also ended up obtaining about 25,000 internal documents, largely emails, that really helped me construct or recreate on the page what had happened back in 2012 and between 2012 and 2017 in a way that hopefully was compelling. And I really want readers to feel like they were a fly on the wall while this was all happening because it's really exciting. And as much as this book is about virtual reality and it is explicitly about that on every page, it is also, to me, a very important and inspiring entrepreneurial story that could be useful to anyone, whether it's someone even just like me as a writer, you know, there's entrepreneurial aspects of being a writer and this helped inform me and make me better at that, I believe. And then also I always saw it as sort of a a modern day American dream story. It was great for me as a nonfiction author that my main character's last name was Lucky, because certainly succeeding in American dream requires a lot of luck. So that was nice. And yeah, it was one of those stories that to me, is, seems to prove that truth is really stranger than fiction. Definitely did not end anywhere close to what I expected or what the people at Oculus expected when I first started working on it. But that's what happened. And that's what I made sure to get out there. Yeah, I know. And we're going to talk about how it ended specifically for Palmer Lucky. But you mentioned you had all this access. How did you get all this access? Because not that you talk about Facebook in a bad light at all, but you do talk the truth. And specifically as we get to the end of the book, where things started happening between Palmer Lucky and Mark Zuckerberg and that whole issue with Trump and all that. How did you have so much access? Sure. So I'll uh, take you through what happened and how I got that access. But I would say that in retrospect, in hindsight, Facebook... I can't speak for them, but I have to imagine they regret giving me that access probably (laughs) because of the end. And then the other thing I would mention is that I said that I had access to over 25,000 internal documents. Those were provided to me on a case-by-case basis by sources themselves that wasn't like provided by Facebook or Oculus. So I'm sure they wouldn't have really wanted to do that either, though I don't think it would have been much of a problem if not for the ending. But in terms of how did I get that access. So based on what I've told you about my writing style and the kinds of things I like to write, the access is critical. I don't think I wouldn't have moved forward with the book if I hadn't gotten the sort of access that I got. And it started in July of 2014. So my first book, Council Wars, came out in May. I was looking for a new topic and had been for several months. 
And then actually a couple of the main characters from Console Wars, Tom Kalinske and Al Nilsson, uh, were at Comic-Con with me where we had a Console Wars panel. And uh, I was sort of sharing my potential ideas for next book. And they thought that the one about Oculus and virtual reality sounded like the most promising. I got an introduction to Palmer Lucky, July 2014. At the time, he said that something that I thought was pretty mature for a guy who was, must have only been 23. He said that he felt that Oculus hadn't accomplished anything yet. Obviously, they had just sold to Facebook for a lot of money, but in his opinion, you know, they still hadn't released a consumer headset. There was still so much more work to do, and he thought it would be early and presumptuous for there to be a book about them. But at the same time, he acknowledged that a lot of journalists had been trying to get access, and also he mentioned that he really liked console wars, and other people there did. So over the next year and a half, 18 months or so, continue to stay in touch with Palmer and some of the other people there and try to push them towards giving me more access. Then finally, in February of 2016, one month before they launched the Oculus Rift consumer version, the CV1 headset, uh, I was allowed to go out there and start formally doing interviews with Palmer and Brendan, who is then the CEO, and Nate, who was the VP of product, and Mike Antonov, who had been a co-founder and you know, was one of their rock star programmers. And it was very fascinating because this was one month before they launched their headset and one month before the HTC Vive came out. And, um, you know, even before the whole ending stuff with Palmer and his exit and the controversy there, I think it's very fair to say that the next seven months did not go at all how they expected. You know, they expected as they had to be as successful as they had been for the previous four years. And they definitely botched the launch, in my opinion. And I couldn't imagine someone really arguing with that. And and so it was a really difficult position for them to be in where they weren't beloved for the first time in the company's history. Or I guess you could say that that started when they sold the Facebook, but it was the first time in a very public way that they seemed to fail or at least not meet expectations. So I think that part's important to mention because that's where the book went, but also because my first book was about a story that happened 25 years before I even started writing it. Whereas this was a story that was happening in real time. And I will say that doing a story that's happening in real time is certainly much harder to do. But because things happened that were unexpected and because I was able to be there and document firsthand real time actual reactions and not the way that people remember things years later, I do think that it is the better way to do things. I would seek a similar project going forward, even though I do think it's a little bit more difficult and certainly harder to outline. So why did you guys think that VR now was going to be such a sexy topic to write? about in comparison to VR in the 90s, right? I mean, you knew about VR in the 90s, I'm assuming, and probably did some research on that. And why did you think, well, this time what's happening here, we've got a book? If you look back, obviously, there's an amazing story. But back then, you didn't know about everything was going to happen. This is a good question. Anecdotally, and what initially got my interest was trying the DK2 headset and thinking that it was amazing. For a lot of reasons, it was better than what exists in the 90s, if for no other reason than just the fact that it had been 15 or 20 years. So being personally blown away by it was something that definitely motivated me. And then also reading Ready Player One around that time, which just sort of forecasted a not too distant future or a future that, that no longer seemed that distant, given what I had experienced with the headset. The Facebook acquisition, too, was a big deal to me in the same way that it was a big deal to investors, where it was sort of that sign of confidence made it seem like this is here to stay or coming sooner than we expected. You know, I guess like if you go back to the 90s, if America Online and their heyday had invested $3 billion in a virtual reality company, I imagine that VR would have been more successful than it was, though still very likely unsuccessful. And it still remains to be seen whether Oculus will be successful. But I still felt this was a super interesting story regardless. Oculus is the fastest company 
to reach a multi-billion dollar exit. So just from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I knew that there was something important here. And I also thought that historically, uh, VR would eventually happen and that what Oculus did would play a key role in that, whether or not they were the company to succeed. And I remember a lot of people, you know, outsiders asked me while I was writing it, like, is it better for you if Oculus fails or if they succeed? My answer was basically that, one, I was rooting for them. I hoped that they succeeded because I wanted VR to succeed. And I thought that if Oculus failed, it would really hurt the chances of VR succeeding. But I told them that it would probably make for a more interesting story if Oculus failed, but I would probably sell more books if Oculus succeeded. So I still think that was probably true. I guess it doesn't matter because things played out the way they played out. And right. The other key thing was part of the answer to why was Oculus so successful with their Kickstarter. And it was, you know, a slick presentation, a really exciting messaging and all of that. But it also was just the price point. $300 for a VR headset was something that you could get behind. It's still expensive, but it's affordable as maybe a gift or for a holiday or if you save up for it. And that's one of the things I find fascinating that when Oculus did finally release their CB1 headset, it cost twice that amount. And having done stuff in the film industry and just creative projects, I know how that happens where, you know, you keep adding a little bit here and there. And by the end of it, like what you're putting out there is so different from your original vision and you sort of never really realize it. And I think that was somewhat of the case with Oculus, though, from their perspective, it was always going to end up being like a standalone headset like Quest at a price point like now for $500. I feel like they didn't take it seriously at some of the backlash to that because they felt in the long run it would reach that point. But the short term does really matter. So here's what I want to do for the next section, because I've got a lot of questions that were submitted and I want to do rapid fire for you. So I'm not going to try to do any follow ups on them yeah. because I want you to be able to answer as many questions as we can. And maybe we'll keep the answer a little bit shorter just so we can get through all these questions, because uh, I know your time is limited as well. You have to leave within the next yep. 30 minutes. So let's start. Since you wrote the book, do you have any new information or enough information on Oculus, Palmer, Lucky, and Facebook to write another book? No, I have a lot more information about the time period that I wrote about, 2012 to 2017, that I would like to include in the paperback edition, and I'm working on that now. But I don't really know that much about Facebook and Oculus at the moment, and that's partly because almost all of my characters and sources got fired or quit. Have you kept in contact with Lucky after and since? Yes, I still speak to Palmer Lucky frequently, as well as at least a dozen or so people from former Oculus that I stay in touch with as in a friendly manner and also because they're still working on interesting projects and I like to be kept abreast of that. Yeah, definitely. We mentioned that your book reads like a movie. How much of this was pure reality and how much of it was a bit of dramatization? Uh, that's a good question because I would say that Council Wars, there's a lot more dramatization in that. I don't know, like I guess like 15 to 20% dramatization. The dialogue, I worked with the people who I was writing the dialogue for in Council Wars. You know, that part was clearly not the documentary artifact. Uh, this book... I would say it's more like 99%. Part of that was because this book happened in the much more recently. So there was so much more documented information. And then part of it too is because I knew that the allegations towards the end of the book about why Palmer was fired were something that people might object to or particularly Facebook. So I wanted to make sure that the whole book was ironclad and that there was no place to really say that something was untrue or not. The only place that would be potentially, I hesitate to say dramatized, but though I would, again, use that word, I think, fairly for Council Wars. But in this case, like, for example, we talked about 
the July 4th meeting in 2012 or the dinner at SDK when Brendan first met Palmer. So I included the dialogue of what they remember, as well as if I asked them the same sort of question like, Palmer, what was being homeschooled like? And I included Palmer's verbatim response to me. So it's possible that he said something different to Brendan in the moment. But, you know, sort of like a, I want it to be like a documentary where at least it was in the person's own words and not my own words or my own creative writing. Right. Your interpretation of it. It's directly what they said. Yep. Exactly. What do you feel is missing today from Oculus that it had back in 2014? Of course, besides Palmer Lucky. <laughs> uh, a soul? No. I mean, <laughs> I think that one of the other answers to your earlier question about why I was attracted to telling this story and possibly why I thought Oculus would be successful where others had failed was because they had so wisely associated themselves and ingratiated themselves to indie developers at a time when game engines like Unreal and Unity give people the ability to make games who never would have been able to do so before, who never would have been able to afford so before. And so there was this beautiful community that started to grow beginning in 2013 with the release of the DK1 headset. And I do feel like from talking to a lot of those developers, many of whom I'm still in touch with today and tell me about their interactions with Oculus and Facebook, I do feel like Oculus has really abandoned those that made it successful. I think actually with Quest, they've done a little bit better and going back to their roots, but they overall have done a pretty bad job. I also think that messaging, but not even in terms of like corporate messaging or directional messaging. I just think one of the things that people really liked about Palmer, whether or not they liked his personality, was that he was very visible and very responsive in the public sphere. You know, on Reddit and on Twitter, he would often get involved and give insight to consumers and to enthusiasts. I should caveat all this by saying Palmer is a complex person and I completely understand that people dislike him for a variety of reasons. But I think that most people, even if they disliked him, did admire that quality that you actually felt like you were getting a, a real honest answer from someone on the inside. And that in some ways come back to bite Palmer because things would change and people might have thought that he was lying. But I think that we would all probably prefer that route of honesty in the moment, even if things change years later, than this black box that Oculus now seems to be. Um, and then it also sort of goes to the open and closed issue, which we get into towards the end of the book. Uh, you know, I saw someone on Twitter yesterday. I, I don't have the exact reference, but it was a developer talking about being unable to do certain things that Oculus had clamped down on, on the Quest. Virtual desktop. Yeah, virtual desktop. Yeah, exactly. streaming through uh, the Steam engine. Yeah. And I disagree with that. I, I was sorry to hear that. And I hope that they will correct that. But it's also not surprising because Oculus and Facebook are really, as we see towards the end of the story, very interested in controlling this environment and basically taking much more of an Apple approach than a Google Android sort of approach. That was sort of the voice that Palmer championed, I believe. He was definitely much more of the gamer-focused, enthusiast-focused, open system champion. And I think that him not being there is significant in that way as well, in sort of showing the direction that Facebook and Oculus have been going. Now, you said jokingly, or you really meant it, that what's lacking now is a soul. Do you feel it's because of Facebook acquiring Oculus, or do you feel because Palmer is gone, or a combination of both? That's a good question. I mean, it was a sarcastic comment, but it comes from a place of truth. So I wouldn't say like, oh, I was just joking. It's an ethereal thing. So also, I do feel like Oculus is very much lacking an endearing quality and an affection for their consumers and for their developers. And, and I guess I, I would describe that as a soul and Palmer embodied parts of that as did Brendan, who's also, by the way, not at Oculus anymore, and also not there due to differing visions with Facebook. It wasn't just because he like had his money and wanted to go. And I think that that is very much the result of being acquired by Facebook, though I would 
asterisk that by saying that I think that's just what happens when you get acquired. Like, I don't necessarily think it's big, evil Facebook has come in and changed Oculus. I think it's more any company they had sold to that would have been the case. Uh, anytime you have a big acquisition at a company investing billions of dollars in addition to the billions of dollars they spent to acquire you, I think it's going to change. I think part of the problem was that at least back in the day with Oculus, and one of the things I liked was that when it was a smaller company, they had a much more centralized vision. And now I think that the vision for Oculus and Facebook changes depending upon which employee you ask. And that doesn't really lead to a successful trajectory very often. And it certainly leads to consumers and developers anxious. Um, and I think the, the concerns about Facebook and privacy issues are very valid. Virtual reality and augmented reality are the most intimate technologies you could have. I can't imagine a more intimate one so close to your face. And even with the eye tracking or potentially with neural aspects to it, I think that the fact that Facebook is going to be the company that's collecting the data is really concerning. Their track record is really bad. And it puts me in a conflicted spot where I love how much money they're putting into VR. And I love the Quest as a piece of technology. But I don't know if I would recommend it to others because I don't know what's happening with that information. And if people care about that, I can't really assure them saying that I've seen on the inside and don't worry about it because everything I saw does make me believe you should worry about it. What's your take on HTC? Because honestly, you barely mentioned them. And I know your book is focused on Palmer Lucky, Oculus and how that got started. But it's also focused on the history of the future, which in this case, it's VR. And HTC is a big part of that. What was your take on HTC and why was it barely mentioned in the book? I'm a fan of what they're doing. I'm so glad there's a bigger competitor in the marketplace. Why they weren't mentioned more in the book, it was mostly an access issue. You know, the downside to writing very character-driven, fly-on-the-wall stuff is that I don't want to dramatize and I don't want to fictionalize it. So if I don't have access to know you know, what those meetings were and what those conversations and disputes were. I basically can't include it unless I know for sure. And early on in the process, I did have some participation and help from HTC, but Valve ended up not wanting to talk to me and not wanting HTC to talk to me. I have since had the opportunity to speak with some employees, so I'm hoping that, you know, an update will help rectify that, but it won't rectify that probably in a you know very satisfying manner because I think that there's probably even a different book that could be written about HTC's effort and their partnership with Valve and they're getting into the market and then their sort of interesting relationship with Valve these days with them having their own storefront competing against Steam and Valve's index coming out and what that means. As a writer, I always wish that I had sort of omnipotent and omniscient access and ability to tell every aspect, but uh, you know, you play with the card you're dealt to an extent and I tried to make it work. And then I would also, and this is something that certainly falls on my shoulders and would be my fault. But another major issue that I had with my publisher, in addition to taking two years extra to finish it, was length. For example, there was a whole chapter about Google Cardboard and the whole creation of Google Cardboard. And I think that HTC is clearly much more important to the history of the future than Google and Google Cardboard, at least to this point in history. And that was cut because I had to pick my battles about what to keep in the book. The book is 500 pages. The publisher wanted 300 pages. So at the same time, that's not a good excuse. That doesn't absolve me. I think, and think it's fair to ask why certain things are or, or are not in the book. But that's the practicality and largely does come down to the access. And then also me trying to stay with a more central narrative to get readers through the story and try to show HTC, at least from their perspective. Do you know if Mark Zuckerberg read your book? And has he approached you at all post the book? I don't know if Mark has read the book. I would assume that he has or that 
people there have. I know that in early January, Facebook managed to get a copy of the version that had gone out to the press and that they like, contacted many of the employees who were featured in it to give them well, basically what was in the book. I guess I should say the reason I know that is because Oculus employees leaked that information to me because they were annoyed that Facebook was giving them this information, basically saying, like, we have a copy of this book. And then at the same time, they were also internally telling their employees they hadn't seen what was in the book yet, that it was, in their words, uh, full of distortions and misinformation. And, and they never chose to contact me to try to correct that or to dispute it. And I think I would have to say the reasons because there's nothing for them to dispute. But I don't know what Mark thinks. I have to imagine he'd be pretty disappointed since he went so far out of his way and his company went so far out of their way to make sure that the truth about what happened with Palmer Lucky was not public and also not even known to other employees. Like some of my favorite responses to the book were from Oculus employees that were not sources who just emailed me to thank me for finally letting them know what had happened with Palmer because they were so frustrated that Facebook and Oculus had never told them and had misled them. An easy example for listeners is just that Facebook told the employees that Palmer kept asking to take time off for vacation as if it was his choice not to be there um, and not theirs. And they also never said whether it was his choice to leave or not. So I have to imagine that Mark is not happy with the book. The next two questions are basically related to each other and it relates to what happened to Palmer. So number one, and this is more of your take on this, do you feel regardless of your political point of view, we're not talking about politics here, but do you feel as such a big personality, which Palmer was at that time, he should have been involved with Nimble America. And it, again, has nothing to do with politics. It could have been any other organization. So publicly as he was. And then the other one, what's your thought on why truly Palmer left Facebook? Sure. So yeah, I mean, I'll just disclose that I've, you know, I've always voted Democrat. I consider myself a liberal. So I don't share many of the beliefs that Palmer has. And I particularly don't like Donald Trump, who he actually intended to support, though he said that he was going to support Gary Johnson and did end up voting for Gary Johnson to help complete the lie that he was coerced to put out there. But do I think it was a good idea for Palmer to be involved with Nimble America? I think the best way to answer that is if Palmer had asked me, you know, a week before he got involved with Nimble America, do you think I should do this? I would have said no. But I think it's an interesting situation because my reason would not have been that donating $10,000 to this organization was in itself wrong. It was more so that if the news came out, it would be perceived as wrong. So I think that happens a lot more nowadays where I don't have any issue with the underlying aspect of it, but the optics of it are bad. And I don't know what to make of those kinds of situations where I don't really think there's anything wrong, but other people do. And we live in the real world where you can't ignore that there's this going to be this ripple effect and this real life reaction. And then that also gets to your second question of why do I believe he was actually fired? I feel very confident saying that he was fired because he had donated to a pro-Trump organization and because there was negative press about it, I feel confident enough to say that I would bet my life that if he'd done the exact same thing and Nimble America supported Hillary Clinton or even Bernie Sanders, that he would still have his job, or at least that he, maybe he would have lost it for a different reason down the road. But, but let me unpack that comment you just said, because I want to just dig a little bit deeper. You said that you believed it was because he donated and then there was bad press. So do you think, again, this is all your opinion, right? Because you can't speak for Mark or anything. Right. But do you feel that they decided to ultimately get rid of him because he donated to that organization or because of the repercussions of the 
the bad press around that? You know, it's a really good question because I think that when I did get some of the people after the book came out, nobody has provided me any information that disputes or contradicts anything that's in there. But in the next edition, I will be at least able to elaborate more on from Brendan's perspective and other perspectives. They say it's not about politics. It's about reaction from the press and potentially from consumers. I think that that's a really dangerous precedent to set because what if I wrote an article tomorrow that said Mark Zuckerberg is a pedophile? Right. Guilty until proven right. innocent. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so people at Facebook, assuming that I published it with a credible outlet, even if my story itself was not credible, if people got mad at Mark, I don't really think that's Mark's fault or I definitely don't think it's Mark's fault. And I don't think that he should lose his job over it. The other big thing, though, is that if that scenario were to play out, I would imagine that Mark would immediately talk to employees or issue a statement explaining why my story is not true to at least put an alternate version out there. And so the fact that Palmer was not allowed to do that does really change my thinking on the matter. If they had said to Palmer, all right, man, this is really bad press, but you can try to put an end to this and put your version out there and see if you can change hearts and minds, and he failed to do so, then I think that is more on his shoulders. But the fact that he went along and did what they required him to do and would not let him put out his original statement, you know, if, if there wasn't an original statement that I had seen, then maybe I would feel different. But I think that once you get to that point, you guys are sort of in bed together that once you're directing his course of action, and especially when you force him to lie if, to keep his job, I think that it's very irresponsible and also illegal to then fire him. I can't say what Mark would say, but I can tell you what Facebook employees have told me, which is that his firing had nothing to do with politics. But like I said, I don't believe that that's true at all. I don't believe that the evidence bears that out. I also believe that if he had done the exact same thing, even if there was bad press, especially from like conservative or Fox News audience, if he had donated for a Hillary organization, I don't think Facebook would have cared. And another thing that I'm going to be included in the next edition of the book is a lot of messages of support that Palmer got from people who were going to buy a rift because he was a Trump supporter, because he seemed to be a Trump supporter. So I can't say that some people weren't genuinely upset and hurt. They definitely seemed to have been. But there were also people who liked the fact that Palmer was a Trump supporter. And that gets to like a larger issue of half the country or a little bit less than half of the country or at least half of the voting public in the United States did vote for Trump and does seem to support Donald Trump. And while I personally dislike him, you can't ignore the fact that, you know, half or almost half of Facebook's users probably support Trump. So taking one side in these issues and in these cultural battles seems like a very poor decision to me and also one that makes me more dubious about the potential success of VR, you know, for VR to really take off and reach the mainstream audience. It needs to reach a mainstream audience. It needs to reach everyone regardless of their political beliefs. I agree 100%. So let's move on to just a couple more questions before you go. What was the most difficult part about writing this book? The most difficult part about writing this book was definitely the ending, kind of the stuff that we've been talking about with regards to politics. Um, and for two reasons, one, because Palmer's politics and because supporting Donald Trump is so antithetical to what I believe. And so I think it's fair to say that parts of the end of the book provide a defense or a, certainly a much more sympathetic perspective of what Palmer did than what was reported. What was reported was so wrong. It felt hard to be sort of feeling like I was defending someone whose views I didn't want to defend, but also at the same time, I felt that he had the right to have them. Um, and then the second part was I worked on this for three and a half years. At the start of the book, Palmer was with the company and his fellow early employees, let's just say, had really nice things to say about him. And then after his exit, they had really negative things to say about his early contributions that contradicted what they had previously said and also seemed to contradict their real-time opinions based on emails. Like I felt like they were lying to me. 
And that was really sad as a human to see other people who had been through this special thing together that had ended not how they wanted. But I I didn't think that that justified them changing their opinions and trying to, in my opinion, rewrite history to fit with uh, current sentiments. Yeah. And I got to say, I appreciate the way you wrote the ending, because regardless of political views, you defended the principle of everybody being able to have political views of their own without being persecuted, regardless whether you agree with them or not. And like you mentioned, you don't agree with his views, but he still defended the right for him to have those views. And I think that was very well done. I really appreciate you saying that because it was a hard balancing act. I will also say that this is anecdotal, not based on statistical evidence, but I do feel that most people that I've talked to from different walks of life, whether it's my doorman downstairs or someone at the barbershop or people in the industry, most people have a perspective that seems to align with the one that you just shared and that I had that, you know, we may disagree, but everyone has the right to support either of the two candidates in a two-party system. But there is also a loud vocal minority that often exists on social media and that I believe exists really largely in in Silicon Valley. And so it felt really weird to have Facebook listening to that small group of people when it didn't really represent how most people felt, even amongst those of us who are liberals. Right. And I'm not defending Facebook or anything, but it's happening everywhere. So yeah, well, one other thing I want to say is that by virtue of reporting accurately, something that had been reported inaccurately, I think that the book towards the end seems to come across as a defense of Palmer. That's maybe a semantic issue. But one thing I would say is, you know, people say to me, oh, so now I'm supposed to feel bad for Palmer or be sympathetic to him. And that's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to, one, report accurately what happened, and two, to use Palmer as a proxy for something that is happening more and more in different places. Like, no, you probably shouldn't feel bad for Palmer Lucky, charismatic guy who's now working at another company that's going to be worth billions. Like, he's fine. But what about other people? And and at least just to help you understand why this is happening in other places and hopefully how we can stop it and how we can all come together instead of fall apart. Definitely. What's your take on the Oculus Quest and the Rift S now? Kind of don't really understand the point of the Rift S, but that's partly based on how much I love the Quest. I think the Quest is an incredible piece of hardware. I do talk to Palmer and have talked to Brendan. So this is me speculating. This is not something they've actually told me, but I do feel like even though it ended badly for both of them, they both still would have done the deal with Facebook because it led to the Quest. Like, I feel like this is the end goal of their vision and they still would have done it over even though it didn't end well for them. And and that's like a tribute to how wonderful the Quest is. It's an affordable standalone VR headset. And it is the thing that finally you could put under the Christmas tree for under $500 and get people, you know, immediately playing VR and using VR out of the box. So And take it anywhere. I play it in my backyard because my backyard is large. It's just amazing. Yeah, I I brought it up to my parents' house. Like I kept mentally being like, oh, do they have a computer or do I need to bring a computer? And this is everything. It's a standalone headset. So do you feel, because I've said this on Twitter and Facebook and some people call me crazy and that's cool. But I've said that I believe this is the beginning of the death of the desktop HMD, the Quest. And not the Quest as it is today, but what the Quest represents. Do you agree or disagree with that comment? I agree with you. That's why I said I don't really understand the point of the Rift S. I've only used it one or two times. I don't own it. So it's definitely an upgrade. It's cool it's better, but that's not the direction that we're moving. And because of what you're capable of doing on the quest, it feels like almost redundant, which is much more of a compliment to the quest than it is an insult to the app. No, that's true. 
When do you think VR will reach mass adoption or do you think it'll ever reach? And I'm talking about mass adoption like the mobile phone. It will reach mass adoption on April 17th, 2022. That's it. You heard it here first. We're done. <laughs> no, but in your opinion, do you think in the next five years, in the next 10 years? I want to say in the next five years, I think realistically in the next 10 years, but I do actually believe in the next 10 years. I think that it will happen, even though it has certainly gone slower than I would have expected had you asked me when I first started the book. And I think that I had more of a tempered expectation anyway. Like I, I wasn't someone who thought, oh, this thing's going to come out of the gate and sell millions and millions of headsets. I still think it's gone slower than I expected, but I'm more confident than ever that it will catch on and be mainstream and eventually ubiquitous in a way like mobile phones. Well, Blake, thank you so much for, uh, man, you answered every single question. I have a whole bunch more, but we'll leave this for the Altspace VR event, which you're doing with me. So I'm very thankful for you joining me in that coming up June 25th, I believe. Just go to howtocreatevr.com and click on library and VR events and you'll see it there. Thank you for doing the podcast. Thank you for answering all the questions. You've been extremely frank and honest. Lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for asking good questions to you and also to the listeners. Excellent. And if people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give a Twitter, whatever you want? Find me on Twitter at Blake J. Harris NYC. I feel very, very fortunate to have gotten the access and to be able to tell the story. So I always feel like it's my responsibility to answer questions about it and I'm happy to do so. So if your question was not answered or you had a question later on, just find me and I'll almost definitely answer it. It just might take a little while. Blake, thank you. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder, if you want access to all of our content, including tutorials, podcast interviews, and more, register for free at howtocreatevr.com. So until the next episode, I'm Marcella Lewin. Cheers, everyone. Cheers, everyone.